I can still picture the immense, fantastic image of Tahrir Square in Egypt with the throngs of Egyptians, you know, millions probably of Egyptians gathering on that day 12 years ago on the 25th of January. People from across Egyptian society, from across all sorts of uh, borders, you know, from uh, different ideologies, different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives, different politics. But they were all there and the banners and the, and the, and the slogans that were raised and the, the chants that were chanted. I can still picture that. I mean, it, 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 it's so vivid in my mind. And um, I recall how inspiring that was, not only for those who are watching, but uh, for everyone who was hearing about what was happening in Egypt, uh, a place that everyone thought that was going to be stagnant politically for, for decades to come where already the heirs to the, to the presidency were earmarked and were known to be you know, the sons of the president and the such. Um, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know, I mean, 12 years have gone and it's like we're in a totally different world. Yes, I, I, I wasn't on the 25th. I was there shortly after in the square with some, with some friends and, uh, and a couple of friends were helping to translate uh, i was talking to various people those um the young kind of modern students that were there looked very 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 alexandria uh, how they looked uh, and then there were some that were more if, if you might say islamic in in flavor you know the way that they dressed and and spoke but the thing for me it was remarkable the way that people just intermingled without the divisions uh, which uh, sometimes are a bit Exaggerated. Were you were you there uh, before Mubarak stood aside, or was it after? Uh, it was just before. Just before. Uh, yes, um, and I was there for a number of reasons. And we had I was there. There was a conference going on and various things. And then I had promised to catch up with my my friend, who is a Coptic Christian, mm -hmm. and uh, she was my sort of assistant, general assistant and translator and so on, when I was working in Nazaria in Iraq during the, just after the, um, <clears throat> just after the uh, um, job done, yeah. bush on the boat thing. Um, it was just the beginning of, uh, beginning of uh, June 2003. Uh, and I arrived, I was based in Brazil, I arrived in Nazaria and the governor said, you need someone to uh, uh, help. And then this, um, fantastic uh, woman volunteered to go around and help with things in Nazaria. So, so then I, so we kept in touch you know, ever since. And then I visited her a few times and I was visiting her, going to a conference. And of course, the whole thing was going on at the same time. You, I couldn't resist going and talking to everyone in Tahir Square. <clears throat> People were a bit fearful at the time um, for a number of reasons. People were worried about some sort of false flaggy type of thing going on. People worried about the military returning, the police. Um, and uh, so it was, it was very tense. I, I can't say everyone was just sort of, you know, cross-legged and serene, you know, it was very tense, but it was, a, it had that sense of a global event. Yeah, I was, um, I was thinking about, as you say, that was an extraordinary moment and it, it galvanized me and it reminded me too of Bahrain and, and what had happened at Pearl Roundabout and a friend of mine there, she had been down at Pearl Roundabout describing the moment and the, the the fact that everyone was together and there were people singing and there were flags we are neither Shia nor Sunni we are all Bahraini and it had that that feeling as you say of togetherness and um, I, I'd been in in Egypt before the revolution and Tahrir Square was a very frightening place and and yet there were brave people who were prepared to speak with us and then they you know would get picked up and hustled off um, to to our great concern. Um, and when, when I was back just after the revolution, a couple of months afterwards, really, and uh, going around with a young woman, and uh, one of the things that was so extraordinary at that time was that women and men together uh, in what is still extremely patriarchal and very, in many ways, misogynist society, that had changed. That had, that, that had really changed. But you could sense that it was, even then, the, the tide was going out. I remember that we went to a, a polling booth with this young woman. And uh, people were lining up. There was that vote on the Constitution, you recall. It was rushed through pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, at the beginning, men and women were 
as, as, as here, lined up together. But at some point, someone had decided that the men and the women needed to be separated. So there are then two lines as we got closer to, to the polling booth. And we were interested in, uh, in hearing women's voices. And so I was asking a woman who brought her young daughter who was eight years old and, and how excited she was to be able to vote in, 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 in a real election as opposed to what had previously existed under Mubarak. And, and I asked her, do, do you think that one day your daughter would, could grow up and become president of, uh, of Egypt? And she smiled and said, I wish, I wish. And then these two men were on the other side. They, they called me over and ran our, and our cameraman and producer over and said, why are you talking to the women? Why do you talk to them? Why do you ask them whether they should be present? Women should be in the kitchen. Women should be having children. <laughs> you know? And this young activist, she was so, it, it, it sort of went beyond anger. It was, it was distress, I think, really, because you could see which way it was going. And, and, and I guess every revolution gets stolen at a certain point, doesn't it? Um, and uh, that, that sense, I had this overwhelming sense then that, that, that the revolution was was slipping away. I don't know, Maha, did... My um, reaction to uh, the beginnings of this revolution was um, uh, was extreme surprise and anguish because I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Um, I was in London and um, Colleagues who were with me previously were as when we were studying uh, at university called me from Egypt and said, you've got to come down. You've got to come to Egypt because I hadn't at been for a while. At what point Early January. Early January. No, January 25th, as, right. soon, as, okay. it, the, as okay. soon as it happened. And I said, uh, yes, I'm, I'm coming. Uh, they said, this is the moment you know, you've been waiting for, that we've all been waiting for. I said, I'm coming. And uh, there was a point, it was just soon after the 25th, it was very difficult to, there was a bit of a crisis in Cairo airport. I can't quite remember the date. And we were desperately trying to find tickets to to get me to Cairo. And I think there was a problem in the airport. We were worried there was closure or people couldn't get out. There was, I, I can't recall the details, but we did. I landed in Cairo um, and I, it was soon after the 25th, maybe three, four days, but it was before the Battle of the Camel. I'm trying to recall the exact day. And the next day we went to Tahrir. I went and I decided not to go with the people that I had associated with at university and where our dream was that one day, you know, Egypt would be free. They greeted me in the airport, but it was a very, very frightening situation in Cairo. Um, I actually decided not to stay with family, um, but I remember they picked me up in the airport and near um, the, the, the Ramses Hotel and all these areas, it was really frightening. You could feel the sense of uh, security. Um, the um, I was told that the hotel lobbies were um, filled with security people. The Interior Ministry was trying to take control. And there were a lot of young men on the bridges and on the flyovers and on the streets. So it was... It was actually um, a fairly frightening wow. atmosphere. So we went to the safety of a home of, of someone we knew part, with family and friends. Mm -hmm. And we went to Tahrir the next day. Um, uh, it wasn't what I expected. I was used to protests in London. I was used to Speaker's Corner from a very young age. And uh, Speaker's Corner, that's quite different to now, but I remember um, getting onto soapboxes and speaking out for Palestine from a very young age. So when I went, I was somewhat disappointed. I know that's not what people want to hear, but for two, three days in a row, we stopped. I didn't go during the Battle of the Camel because there were people in the know who said, don't go, today is going to be a very bad day. And I said, no, we still want to go. But for some reason, there was no one to go with me that day. And luckily we didn't, but we proceeded to go after that. But the atmosphere for me at some points was yes, there was a festive at points 
atmosphere, an atmosphere where people gathered from all walks of life. But there was also an atmosphere which seemed not a real revolution. Uh, it was at one point I got very upset after I'd been there for, for several days. I said, this is a bit like a speaker's corner. What are you doing? We've got to get out and go towards the Tahadiyya, right. to the yeah, presidential, the presidential palace. palace. Mm. I felt at a point, and I'm saying that, that maybe what some people don't hear, because of course it was incredibly uh, uplifting that Egyptians had poured out. But there was a sense very soon afterwards that we were being hemmed in in the square. And that the revolution I sensed could be contained and hadn't turned into the revolution that it should be. Because we were contained in a square. Right. Were, were you, I mean, did, did you uh, sense... Uh, so you're talking about a time when it, uh, the, the security forces, and particularly the army, hadn't made its mind up as to whether... I, I think that the army was watching very closely right. and had made its mind up from very early on to contain the situation, but as calmly as it right. could. So there was a sort of a tank nearby and people were allowed to go and take photographs and so on. And there was a very discomforting feeling, maybe because I came from outside and I never believed that the people in the army were hand in hand and that was the slogan that was being promoted i have a story on that i'll, I'll tell you uh, when uh, if i mean when i went i went after hussein mubarak stood aside i went on the friday on the following friday and um, as soon as i landed um, i headed directly before even the hotel i headed directly for tahrir square because I mean, the, the, the inspiration, I mean, obviously your perspective is from someone who was within, who was inside, and from quite early on, when at that time, no one had anticipated that within a few days, Hussein Mubarak would stand aside. But what, when I arrived, I, I went to Tahrir Square, and it was, it was immensely uplifting. I mean, the fact that people were standing together, the, the kind of slogans I thought were, you know, I remember commenting, I, I, I had a new Twitter account. And uh, and I was, you know, commenting how those slogans were so mature from the political point of view. They weren't divisive as people had expected that the Islamists would have their own, you know, sort of corner and the, 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 the leftists or the secularists would have their own corner. But I remember vividly, you know, going down one of the streets uh, shooting off uh, Tahrir Square and seeing one of the tanks where people were lining up in order to take photos with the tank and with the soldier inside the tank. And, and everywhere was the stamp, Al-Jaysh wa Shab Eid Wahda, the army and the people, one hand. And I, uh, and I then went off to uh, shoot off a, a tweet saying, uh, Arab armies were never there for, for the people. They were always set up in order to protect the regimes. And the kind of, attack that I got was, you know, unforgettable. In relation to that, when we were in the square, uh, many of my colleagues who had come here to, at one point, either do masters or postgraduate in London, went back to Egypt. And uh, a few of the young women there with me said, this is our first experience of, of something like even protesting at any level. So they were actually standing still, not even sloganeering or anything. And at one point, one day particularly, they sent in a military general. And so one of the circles where people gathered was this military uh, guy, and he started to, to hold forth um, in a way that was trying to be amenable and... He was surrounded by a lot of people who just stood there quite silently. And I remember that day I said to them, let's go and start calling out for the people want the fall of the regime. We started to do that and they were quite reluctant. A whole group of men started to gather around us and that was frightening. We quickly tried to disengage 
I got onto my phone and there was someone I knew in the square, a couple of people who said, you know, if there's any problem, call. It was frightening. Mm -hmm. So the point is there was a degree of acceptance of uh, uh, the protests from the military, but the, they were very much there also in plain clothes amongst 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 the people. Um, they were ready to pounce. It had got messy for them between 25th, then there was the fall of Mubarak, which they realized had, they had to dislodge him. And then they waited. Um, I think that they knew that this had to be controlled. Uh, then we went into a period where obviously, um, you know, the revolutionary fervor was still there. The hopes were very high. Uh, and we moved towards a constitution and elections, but I think they were always ready. The military was always ready and were making preparations to interfere and to ensure that this revolution didn't succeed. Before, be, yeah. bef before we get to, to that particular point, I, I mean, uh, I'd like us all to cast our memories back to those days in February, March, April, May, June, when I recall traveling extensively, I went to, to North America, I went to, to the United States, various cities around the United States. I went to Malaysia, I went to Australia, and wherever I went, people spoke of Egypt. I mean, obviously, we were in the fervor of the Arab Spring. Tunis had happened, and Ben Ali had been dislodged. Then Egypt had happened. And Mubarak had been dislodged, and then things moved on to Libya. And, and Bahrain to, had happened. Bahrain had happened. Yemen had happened. Syria had happened. So people were talking wherever I went. People were talking. But the thing is that Tahrir Square, particularly, and and I'm not entirely sure why. Is it probably because of the size of Egypt, the importance of Egypt, the strategic relevance of Egypt? But Tahrir Square particularly inspired people. And I recall going to Washington D.C. and finding one of the squares there being called Tahrir Square. You know, someone had scribbled on Tahrir Square. I remember going to Florida and someone had scribbled on one of the, the streets, uh, the the, uh, the squares in Miami, for instance, Tahrir Square, and so on and so forth. This happened. And, and the T-shirts, you recall the T-shirts with the uh, the chains being broken. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the revolution has happened. Uh, but, you know, that's interesting, Anas, because you speak about there was that sense of um, something is happening here. The people are out in the streets, they're facing enormous risk, but there they are, the people are coming together. And um, I remember uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I, I'd met her before the fall of Mubarak, and then we came back, we're working on another program with, uh, with her. And uh, it was when Hillary Clinton had come to, to Cairo after the revolution. And uh, she had a meeting with Hillary. Uh, and we, for, for a brief moment, we got in with their cameras before we got hustled out by her security people who were furious that we'd gotten in. But in any event, I asked uh, uh, Gamila afterwards, well, what did you say to Hillary Clinton? Uh, and what did Hillary Clinton say to you? And she said, well, Hillary Clinton said that uh, you've shown great courage and this is a marvelous thing that has happened. And I said, well, and what did you say to her, Gamila? She said, I said, that's very nice. Uh, uh, Madam Secretary, but where were you two months ago? And I think that's the point, because the governments, our government, the U.S., and, and, and the betrayal, I mean, it was, it was a very brutal lesson for the people in the streets. And I often think back to, um, you know, the, the situation in China, where, you know, that image of, of, of someone holding up the Statue of Liberty in, in styrofoam and just before it gets crushed by the tanks. And there was this idealistic belief that the West would step up because these people were on the streets for democracy, for freedom. And, you know, our governments didn't step up. And that, that's the tragedy. And I think, you know, I asked the question on my podcast to, to, to people from time to time, is the Arab Spring dead? And, and young Arabs say to me, it's not dead. It's not over. And I know Maha would agree with that as well. Um, and, but it's been a tough lesson, I think, because no, and, and, and a good one, because, you know, the West, the Western democracies betrayed those people who went into the streets. That, that point, particularly, Paul, I mean, we've, we've 
spoken about this at various events and uh, and your own writings and and the like regarding you know for for years decades i i'd even say you know from the 90s um i as someone who run uh, a think tank here in london was invited to countless seminars and conferences and meetings and the question was well you know do muslims or arabs do they accept democracy they accepted democracy. They espoused democracy. They fought. They gave their lives for democracy. What happened? What? Well, this uh, this idea that some parts of the world uh, cannot accept or cannot manage democracy is is a kind of slur which you which you hear, and it was it was uh, used in the wars in the Balkans. You know, these Balkan people they can't accept democracy and all this type of thing. And the Soviets can't accept democracy. I mean, uh, everyone I think. 90% of countries in the world have been told that they can't accept democracy. And I, and I think, you know, we can't accept that either <laughs> as a point. But I, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, clearly I didn't, when I was in uh, <clears throat> Egypt at that time, um, obviously being a, being a Brit <laughs> and, uh, uh, and having to be somewhat, you know, impartial in professionally, uh, I clearly I didn't have the the emotional you know, stake that, that uh, Egyptians and other people from, from the Middle East had uh, in the Arab Spring more, more generally. And, and the, I, I agree, the central question of, uh, of Egypt at, at the time. <clears throat> but even though I was you know, uplifted by the uh, interaction between the people in Tahir Square at the time, um, in the back of my mind, I was 100% sure that this was a blip uh, and it wasn't going to result in a permanent, uh, permanent change in Egypt or indeed in any of the countries. What led you to think that? I mean, why? Well, because of the place, the people? There, were t- the... there, were t- there is two sides of the same coin, really. I mean, one, one is the, 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 structure of the, the structure of the opposition, if I can put it that way. I mean, things went a different way in 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 Tehran in you know seventy nine, <laughs> but I had many conversations. People were speaking freely, which was a, certainly a very important thing. But I heard from the sort of more modern, studenty, middle classy type of uh, people there. You know, they, they wanted a sort of Western a, a democracy, but they were sort of regarded by the um, the more sort of brotherhood orientated population which is the majority of the population because of the social services provided by the well different parts of the brotherhood you might say um uh, meant that they had roots um they had support from the from the poor and there were conversations of you know well you middle class students you know you can go and fly off to new york tomorrow you don't really have the stake that we have you know we're we're living, we don't have sanitation, we don't have running water, you know, this type of thing. And then there was a point when, um, there was a point when uh, people were saying, oh, um, uh, the beards are coming. They started to say, the beards are coming, the beards are coming. And uh, people were rather fearful. And then a, a, a phalanx of, of, of men with beards uh, marching into the square as if they were an, an army. And then they started... Um, uh, separating men and women that were sitting together and this type of thing, but I mean, there was—I wouldn't say there was a sort of violent flavour. I mean, they were sort of a, a, my uh, my friend that I was there uh, with. Um, she uh, obviously she 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 is a Coptic Christian, so she was sort of dressed in a Western way. But she remonstrated uh, with them and uh, said, "You know, you have to accept that there's uh, going to be some there's going to be social liberalisation as well as." other forms of liberalization. And that was a very interesting kind of dialogue. And but once the once people were out of their phalanx, out of their sort of military style march into the square, and people were sort of mingling, you could see that the scope, there was a scope for a sort of compromise b- between them. But that was the first reason that sort of made me think, well, this is not, um, you might say intellectually, you know, in the protesting led by the more westernized younger people. Um, but that's not where the that's not where the political roots uh, really are. So that was the first thing. And the other thing was, is that it didn't matter who I spoke with, what 
flavour they were or whatever it is, um, people had not really done much work as to what you do after you push the regime uh, over. And this is probably true across the, the, the Middle East. And people didn't really know when people were saying, oh, you know, that we hope the military will be with us and it could be our saviour and all this type of thing. It meant that they didn't really understand where the power and But isn't was. that the, the very nature of revolutions, uh, Paul? I mean, you, you really can't expect from a revolution, a popular revolution, a peaceful revolution at that to sort of have some sort of plan or strategy that it's thought out all these questions, don't you think? But one has to have a notion of yeah. it. And I think the, the key issue here with Egypt and with much of the Arab world is um, you actually didn't have, uh, let me use sort of almost leftist jargon, you didn't have a revolutionary vanguard that took control of the institutions yeah. of state. And uh, that's why, in some respects, it was a peaceful intifada. Mm. It was the first time uprising. It was the first time that people felt, you know, they could be free and they could speak freely. What I also witnessed in the square is very different circles of opinion. And it was the first time people even engaged, as you said. I mean, someone who's got a much more liberal uh, approach, talking with an Islamist and so on. There was free speech and interaction and people came together. And actually, there, there, were, there are also so many examples of Christians and Muslims coming together, of different people of political orientation speaking, and so the, 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 there was a, there was freedom in the first instance, but in reality, was there a, a program or a, a plan to take control of the state? No, it wasn't that sort of a revolution, because in a sense, you needed a, a, a group or an organisation that could stand up to the military and enter into that kind of struggle. The struggle hadn't reached that point, and the military had the power of the tank, um, and the, the, the other forces on the ground had popular support, but they didn't have a plan to control the state. Uh, and, or the institutions of the state. And this is why in Egypt we use the term a lot, the deep state. The deep, deep state remained quiet and ultimately, although it had elements of it that may have Would it be supported. fair to say that the nature of the revolution and the timescale it took, I mean, we're talking about uh, a regime that had been in place for, what, 50, 60 years, being the head of the state, being dislodged within a matter of a couple of weeks. Is it fair to say that one of the issues that remained problematic for the revolution itself, that the, uh, the objective of removing the head of the state was achieved too easily, maybe? And maybe with the help of the military. With the help of and the I remember at the time, I mean, <laughs> to follow up on, um, on what was being said, I was also in Egypt um, having left at a time when I was going to do a program on Tunisia for crossing mm -hmm. continents for Radio 4. Mm -hmm. And I called from there. I said, forget about Tunisia now. I'm here in Egypt and look, this is happening around us and I can do something. On. So I think I did produce, I'm trying to recall, yeah, when I, we did produce something. And I was very worried people would be very upset with me because um, I should listen to it again. Uh, but I think I said, no, the military knows what it's doing. To some extent, it was, of course, in a state of muddle, but it did the right thing. It came in to remove. It didn't want Jamal Mubarak, Mubarak's son, to take over. This was its opportunity. And to what extent was the popular uprising an opportunity for them also to get in there and actually start taking control again as the military. I heard a wonderful phrase, which was that the revolution in uh, Egypt then, it was more Ceausescu than Jaruzelski, in the sense of it was, you know, some a head's got to fall somewhere. And, uh, and uh, so that was, I think that that's a fair you know, kind of guess, if you like, as to what happened. There. Yeah, and I think that the point you make with military is, is, is very important because they had decided that Mubarak was finished, but as you say, the deep state very much in play and pretty much untouched by the revolution, really. It washed very gently up against the military. And, and as we say today, the power of the military is 
is probably potentially going to bring down how much of that bill is uh, is sort of using the benefit of hindsight i mean well of course because at the time i mean at the time were there real voices that were critical of the way in which the crowds dispersed after the the removal of mubarak i don't recall that i mean i i had several conversations after especially after the coup where people said we mu- we shouldn't have left tahrir square we should have you know demanded that kind of vanguard to you know take over the institutions of the state or the such but that only happened after the coup but the criticism was and i remember hisham hellier wrote a book about it a really wonderful book um there was no leaders the leaders didn't emerge it was a kind of inarticulate in that sense and our expectation in the west was okay where's the leader if there's no leader where's the revolution which i think was a was a mistake and the other thing i think we should remember is the extent to which the gulf states those those ruling families were really shaken up and they were big players in in ensuring that those revolutions were stopped and they destroyed the revolution in Bahrain they were instrumental in removal as we know of, of Morsi uh, you look at their engagement in Libya the Qataris were very much involved by the way in on Libya. this particular point very interesting because i had a conversation with someone who was very close to the ruling family in saudi arabia um and uh, he basically said something which i i hadn't heard from anyone else uh he said that the fall of mubarak shook um the palace to the core um because only a few weeks earlier um the king king abdullah had been in cairo he'd been at the pleasure of hosni mubarak they'd enjoyed you know the, the the luxury of the presidential palace and the resort and i don't know where and then within a matter of days um he sees how peaceful demonstrators not you know armed not using any kind of weaponry or, or the such without um foreign intervention american or otherwise um being brought down and he said that those moments those final moments of of mubarak were followed intensely by the king and his advisors and when he decided to step aside um the you know you could almost sense how intense that was a moment within uh, the palace in the royal palace in, in riyadh and of course right next door was bahrain and and Bahrain they they saw very very clearly very physically as you say the power of a peaceful revolution and uh, it was inevitable that the saudis and the emiratis were going to come in it was just a question of when and how and uh, and uh, they basically allowed the ruling family to do what they needed to do and it got very messy and very ugly and very violent in Bahrain um and the situation in Egypt once uh, uh morsi had lost or uh, i think apparently or probably did lose the support of the people because the economic system was in a mess and he had only but he only had a year for Pete's sake the guy was the first democratically elected president he wasn't given any time at all and you know we just let that happen do you remember that was this a coup Oh, I don't know. Perhaps it was a coup. But mm. you know, Bill, the, you know? the plotting started so early on, and I yeah. use the word plotting. I mean, if the military had its eye on controlling the situation from the time the, of the fall of Mubarak on February the 11th, it continued to have its say. Uh, whether it is cutting off the electricity, not allowing the rubbish to be collected. I mean, these are not just stories. There is evidence that they tried to make everything go wrong from day one um, after the election of, of President, the late President Morsi. And in a sense, um, those who colluded with them, it wasn't just the military as we know it now, those who colluded with them were those in the deep state and the business elite as well. I'll tell you a short story of and when I was I used to go to Egypt every month. Uh, partly with the think tank I was associated with to hold workshops and meetings closed meetings. This was after the, uh, this was after the fall of Mubarak. Uh and uh, 
there was the last time I went to Cairo before uh, the coup was around April. The coup was on, in July, July the 3rd. I went in April and I should have carried on going every month, but there was a sense of something going very wrong. But the last meeting I had was here uh, with the Egyptian ambassador because we were preparing for a visit for yes. President Morsi. And the reason I got involved with that, I won't mention the think tank, was going to, we were trying to prepare for Morsi to speak at this yeah. think tank. And they were, they were trying to prepare a dinner at the British Museum and all sorts of things. So at the, when I met with him, he said, do you think they'd start as late as June? Do you think these demonstrations on the 30th of June will dislodge him? He thought they might. But prior to that, my last visit to Cairo was around April. And I was in the home of some very high-powered business people in Egypt, some of them with dealing with tourism, some had their companies. And all of them said... They, I tried to be, you know, somewhat quiet about my political views, although I couldn't hide them very well. Some of them knew where I stood. I heard from many of them that they had actually stopped their factories working, their companies working, and they said, we're just waiting. And ultimately, they said, if he survives over the next few months and passed beyond June or July, they said we are going to have a problem removing him. I said, but we'll have free and fair elections the next round. They said, no, if he's re-elected, if he stays, he will be re-elected. So what I'm trying to say is that, the, that there were so many business people and so many elites in Egypt that didn't want this revolution, even though there may have been young, westernized people in the square liberal people who wanted freedom and democracy. There is an elite, till now, this is the problem. You, it is the alliance between the business elite that hasn't quite worked with the military and that struggle continues. Uh, and uh, the ordinary Egyptians and even middle-class Egyptians increasingly wanting change. You know, let's move forward. Let's really leap forward to 2023. It's been 12 years since that glorious, glorious day. Those events, I mean, we might, we might look back on them and, and say, well, we should have done this or should have done that. But at the time, at the time, they were magnificent. They were unprecedented. They were unique. And, um, and I, I know for, for a fact that the entire world was watching. I, as I said, I traveled and I saw with my own eyes how, you know, I, I was taken aback by uh, certain friends from the left over here saying that's precisely what we should have done just before the war in Iraq. We should have never left Trafalgar Square. I heard it from them. I heard it from them saying the Egyptians have got it absolutely right. We should never have left Trafalgar Square that day, you know, when we had two million people there. We should have just stayed there in Hyde Park and Trafalgar Square. We should have just occupied the place. But... We are where we are today. And, and one of the elements that I, I, I just can't forget, because you say that your last time in Egypt just before the coup was in April. Mine was towards the end of May. I was in Alexandria, and I was with a delegation from around Europe, the EU and otherwise, and we had uh, a meeting which was to be opened by the president's advisor, Dr. Isam Haddad. And um, I arrived, I've never been to Alexandria before, so I thought I'd arrive two, three days, have a look around. And, um, and I recall, you know, it was uncomfortable. It was deeply uncomfortable. The graffiti on everywhere, basically. The, the kind of discussions people were having in cafes. I remember sitting somewhere where there were something like six or seven TV screens, each one on a different chat show or, the such and the kind of rhetoric that was being it was all very very unsettling and when I had a, a minute with Dr. Islam Haddad I said to him you know do you realize that something is simmering here and he said don't worry about it 
we have it all under control. And that, that was something that I'll never forget. I, I could never escape the feeling that something was, was, was boiling uh, under, the, under, under the surface. And there are some, I mean, I think with all such events, you know, <laughs> revolutions or attempted revolutions, I think, you know, it's fair to say there are unique elements, but there are also parallels with events elsewhere. And if you look at what's happened uh, in, that, in that 12 years to now, you can draw the parallels with Sudan, uh, you know, after Bashir went and, and so on, and how the and, uh, Hemeti and all these things happened. And with Gagwa in, in Zimbabwe, you can see what's happened in, in Algeria as well, and to some extent, you know, even Myanmar, where you have a, uh, a, a financial... I mean, there isn't a word for it. I don't, there should be a word for it. Sort of financial, military, yeah. um, sort of elite, uh, economic elite, and that's really you can see how it conjures up a mental picture of, of a sort of a, a children's skittle, you know, where you push it over, you let go, and it just springs back like that. And the economic controls that the military have, or the quasi-military have, you know, in Sudan and Zimbabwe and Algeria and elsewhere, have the same. Um, have, a, have the same uh, elements in terms of how quickly and the manner in which things uh, bounce back. And so um, there are many elements in Egypt which are unique. I strongly agree with you about that. But this, uh, to try and have a revolution where all the levers of power, especially economic power, are in the hands of a small number of uh, military or quasi-military uh, people is, uh, means that the thing will... Go and it, so now we have the situation with with Sisi, who has embarked on this um, sort of naively foolish uh, kind of fake copy of Chinese economic development. With I mean, somebody needs to say to Sisi, "Look, you know, I know that he's a follower of uh, Chinese economic development." And somebody needs to whisper in his ear, "Look, it's not all about China's not all about opaque finances." And um, and uh, infrastructure investment, you know, and low returns. You know, it's not all about that. There are lots more things which is make those are the things which have reduced China's uh, economic development. But he's latched on to the wrong thing. So we've got this uh, Alamein thing with this, some Saudi money and so on, and you've got the new administrative uh, center city, um, and you've got this. Uh, this roads program, you know, and they're just awarding all the assets to themselves. And people say that the military is what, no more than 30% of the economy. Well, this is 30 to 40% of the economy, but this is absolutely not. I mean, statistically, it may well be legally well, in, true, in but reality, it's not true in I mean, the bigger picture. Well, I mean, exactly. What, what, the, the, the military controls so much of, of, of these massive construction projects. I mean, the, the cement industry, for example, one of the ironies, I think, is that the military squeezed out a lot of the private sector. Of course, and, absolutely. And, 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 but, but he's put himself into a bit of a bind, I think, because not just, uh, you know, uh, attempting to do what the Chinese are doing, but he's looking at Mohammed bin Salman and the mega, the giga projects of Mohammed bin Salman. Well, I'm sorry, Mohammed bin Salman is a huge, vast pocket of money, the public investment fund. What does Sisi have? He's got to go to the world market to borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow. And when you talk about things like the basics, I mean, I was in Cairo in 2008 and there were the beginnings of bread riots when we had to get out in a hurry because they saw, they saw a camera and took the wrong, you know, the, the, the wrong idea about it. So that was really then you could see the beginnings of the revolution. If, if Sisi cannot and he isn't able to control inflation, if he cannot, provide the basics to the people and there will be another revolution or the military will simply say, okay, your time is up. We're going to put somebody else in. And the other side of this is that the, the Emiratis in particular have said, you know what? We're not going to keep pouring money in. Yes. You know, there's going to be some, there's going to be some accountability. Only a few days ago, the, the finance minister in Saudi Arabia said, listen, we're not going to give money without accountability. Exactly. We need to know exactly where exactly. our money is going. And, and when you think about how important, the point I was making earlier, how important those Gulf ruling families were to the, demolishing the revolution, yeah. they still have enormous power. Well, that's, that, you know, that, that, that's extremely important. And you know, we can talk about the economic 
catastrophe that is Egypt right now, uh, you know, for hours probably. I mean, one thing I remember from those, you know, um, tours of the of the local cafes in Alexandria in, in 2013, one thing I remember Lamis al-Hadidi, one of the most prominent uh, uh, presenters um, on Egyptian TV, um, sort of, uh, you know, really lambasting President Morsi, saying, how dare you allow the pound to uh, to be you know a dollar to six point five, jenir uh, pound, Egyptian pounds. When today it's more than thirty, it's more than thirty pounds to the dollar. You talk about the kind of 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 debt, the level of debt that Egypt is in today. We're talking about future generations. You're talking about two, three Egyptian generations that will continue to try to pay off that kind of debt. And yet you're talking about a country that has not moved on a single inch towards any kind of development. I, I think he, the whole regime is in real crisis. He has survived um, and um, he might survive a little longer. Uh, uh, or These regimes can because they have the power of the tank, they, uh, they have regional and international support can go on and on and they have the, uh, they have the willingness to repress and continue repressing. Uh, we've seen it in Syria. Uh, but the reality is that he really does want to s survive one way or another. So the IMF is telling him now he's got to roll back some uh, of the military control over the economy because the military has such a stranglehold on the economy. And I remember also with one of the key figures after the election of President Morsi, economic figure, saying to me, uh, experts saying to me, you know, we can do very little because the military has a stranglehold on the, on the, on the system, the whole economic system. So it's something that's gone on and on for years in Egypt. He will see resistance. He may, uh, what he's done is put, try to privatize or put on some companies for privatization but i think like everything else he does it's a little bit here and a little bit there in order to uh, assuage the international community or the imf he did the same with human rights he set up some kind of committee for human rights nothing's happened the prisons are still the prisoners are still there the repression continues he's he set up a national dialogue to say to the world, we're going to have an engagement with the different uh, sectors of Egyptian society. That's come to nothing, it's a joke. And I think we will see exactly the same thing happening with the rollback of the military from the economy. There may be some kind of privatization opening up to, to others to invest. Mm, I don't, I don't but, think. But it's, I mean, you don't think that's going to happen even. So that, is, it's, not, it's not going to happen. I think it's very difficult to separate out these economic structures from the position of Sisi himself. I mean, clearly, the whole idea of spending money and sloshing money ev everywhere is to keep his position. And the only reason he's still there is because he's promised everybody, uh, you know, um, slice of the cake. wealth. Yeah. And so he's he's gone down that route, and he's gone down that route further than anybody else in the past. And everyone's made, made a lot of money, but he's trashing the economy. I, I, he's probably. I mean, looking at his background, he probably doesn't even really understand the consequences of his actions. And I, don't, I doubt very much, looking at the, some of the details of the agreement with the IMF, which is three billion and maybe three billion down the road, uh, is, is that he can't implement any of that. He will lose his position. And if he, try, if he attempts to take the, the, the IMF framework seriously, I can't see him lasting more than four and a half minutes. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. And and, and just to come back to uh, the human rights issue, uh, in fact, with Giulio Virginia, he probably wanted to give the Italians more, but he couldn't because the security system was not going to let it go anywhere near as high as it should go. So that was clearly a signal that he's got himself in a box. He's got himself in a dead end. And I really do feel that, as as, as we're saying, that, that, that the clock is, is ticking. But of course, then we come back to the Egyptian people and the costs that they're having to bear and, and what happens, you know, if he goes, you know. But the fear is that we don't really have change 
because this is why the focus on the one man is not good enough. Yes. Because we had the fall of Mubarak, whoever removed him, whether it's partly the popular uh, uh, movement on the on the street or yes. partly with the help of the military. Again, this may happen. You may have a, uh, the people pouring onto the street and then the military come in as well to save their necks and to also find some kind of compromise. Uh, and the, another compromise, of course, is whether the Gulf states decide on a civilian uh, figure uh, that then fills uh, that space with that, that can uh, reach some kind of arrangement with the military. But at the end of the day, the corruption continues. There is no real structural change, and the majority of the 100 million Maha, just carry uh, on suffering. Do you think it's the Gulf states that really have leverage in regards with... But they'll have a say. Uh, I mean, I think they'll have a say because I think the military... Because of the vir- by the virtue of how much they've put in? Or? By virtue of also the fact that Egypt can't stand on its own two feet now because of the level of debt. So any military or business elite that wants to come in instead of Sisi wants to have good relations with them and they will have some sort of say because again, they'll turn to them in one form or another asking for more more help. Uh, So in a sense, Egypt has been destroyed by the military regime, that of Sisi and the the presidents who were in power before him, who were also from the do military. You see, do you see the Egyptian people rising again? I think there is no option except for the Egyptian people to end this dictatorship, to actually come out whether as... The same way they did 12 years ago? Maybe in a very different way. Maybe, maybe, maybe in a in a way where it's not just an outpouring on the streets, but with very serious demands, where you have people uh, not just coming out uh, uh, to enter a square and to say, you know, we want cease the end of uh, we want cease you to go, because some are already saying that. There's a lot, I mean, you know, a lot of talk in different circles that Sisi must go. They even use this expression. But what if Sisi goes? Now, the system is the one that we've had for decades that has destroyed the economy, that has impoverished people, uh, and that has threatened Egypt's national security. Yeah, we, can't, we can't assume that, I don't think we can assume that the military will be acting uh, rationally, because if he tries to squeeze... I mean, Sisi appears not to know that if you want to sell shares in a company, the company's got to have some accounts. You know, he just seems not to know about that. But I think that if he's if he's he's going down that, he's trying to go down that road, he's unlikely to succeed going down that. And he's not going to be saved, exactly as you say, he's not going to be saved by the GCC countries. I mean, GCC countries have invested about $1.8 billion in Egypt relatively recently. But the trouble is that you don't really know what the terms, what's the small print, you know. And I and uh, I think they're sort of word on the street, or there is such a thing as a street, maybe a street in by the between the IMF and the World Bank in Washington and the other word on the street. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, what they've done is that, is that is that they've 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 enticed investment in, yeah. but then they've given they've they've signed a deal where they get a guaranteed return. In other words, it's, there's no risk. Involved yeah. this type of thing, just to show, you know, uh, 